Podcast, marking the end of an era, with Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver, Charlie Walker, and Joe Zunz. The Toddcast, June 2015 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Toddcast. I'm Indy and I'm in the studio with Mark and Charlie. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. And uh, we have some very, very sad news this episode. Unfortunately, it's Aaron Mark Perver's very last episode. We're really sorry, listeners, but um, he's moving on to greener pastures. Um, <laughs> but it's not the last you've heard of him yet. Uh, in the show this time, we interview Professor Douglas Scott about the cosmic microwave background, and Dr. Joe Zunz answers your astronomical questions. But first, to commemorate his many years of service and his many interviews on the other side of the microphone, we have Charlie Walker interviewing our very own Dr. Mark Perver in this month's Job Bite. So for this month's Job Bite, we're talking to Dr. Mark Perver, who's been working at JBCA and with the Jobcast for many years now. Hello, Hello. Mark. Hi. I'm used to being on the other side of the microphone, but that's okay. So you've been at Manchester for a long time now. You did your PhD here, is that right? That's right, yeah. I have been here since 2006, one way or the other. And with the Jawcast since it started? Almost, almost. You won't hear my voice in the very early episodes, but later on, yeah. Okay, and what is it that you work on now? Um, Well, it's broadly what I've always been working on, which is pulsars. Um, So they're my favourite thing in radio astronomy, and something that we do a lot of at the University of Manchester. So we've probably heard a bit about pulsars before. Could you give us a brief recap of what they are? Yeah, well, a pulsar is something that you can find in space with a radio telescope. And it's really sort of like a special kind of star. So the ones that we typically look at are about the same distance as a star you might see in the sky. So we find them within our Milky Way galaxy. Um, But they're a lot rarer than normal stars because they are made from uh, the death of a star in a supernova. So when a big star gets to the end of its life, it can explode and it can leave behind a very, very dense core which is what we call a neutron star or a pulsar. And the remarkable thing about them is that they're very, very massive and compact and they spin very quickly and they shoot out beams of radio waves from their magnetic poles. Like a lighthouse. Yeah, at least that's our slightly simplified understanding of them. Um, But one way or the other, we, we do pick up pulses from them, which again, yeah, you can imagine it being like a lighthouse. You just see the flashes. And these turn out to be quite useful little clocks uh, in in some cases and that's really why i, I study them is that because they're they're very stable they always spin the exact same speed and over a long period of time pretty much, much yeah the rotation is very stable they gradually slow down but we can allow for that um, and when you take that into account their sort of um predictability as a clock uh, for some pulsars can be good enough to sort of measure uh, an interval of about 20 years to maybe within a microsecond accuracy something like that yeah, it's incredible. I think the European Space Agency has a pulsar clock uh, at its headquarters. Is that right? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's always been one of these things that we've we thought of doing. Like on Earth now, atomic clocks keep time, and there's a whole battery of them all around the world. And in principle, you can use a battery of pulsars to do that as an alternative, and and they could sort of keep a little check on each other. Yeah. So, is there anything that messes up the stability of pulsars? Yeah, there can be things. Some of them glitch, which means they'll suddenly start to spin faster. And at some level, which in our observations we're often still digging down to, we know that their rotation must show some instability, sort of like any clock. So what I concentrate on is the most accurate ones, um, the ones that don't really show 
glitches or very, very few and the ones where the timing seems to be able to be done very, very accurately. So we call it pulsar timing when we time them. Uh, and that turns out to be a particular sort of subpopulation of pulsars that we call millisecond pulsars or recycled pulsars. Why are these called millisecond pulsars? Um, basically because they spin so quickly. Uh, so the, the period of time it takes them to spin once is usually between 1.2 milliseconds. That's about the fastest it's been found. And maybe going up to about 20 milliseconds, something like that. So they're spinning incredibly quickly. And they're called recycled because after formation, they, as far as we know, have been sort of accreting or robbing mass from a companion star that they're orbiting around. Um, and that spins them up faster and faster. So they're sort of recycled from a normal pulsar into one of these millisecond pulsars. And they're nice because the magnetic field that they have, which is very, very strong for any pulsar, is somewhat weaker for a, a millisecond pulsar. And that seems to keep their, their rotation even more stable than a normal one. So we concentrate on those when we're trying to do really accurate timing. Is another reason that they're so stable because they're going so fast? So if you think about a spinning top, it processes as it slows down. So it gets a little bit of variance. But before, when it's going really fast, it's quite accurate. Yeah, I think that's part of it. There's not much to slow it down. So mm. on the outside, it's sort of surrounded by what we call its magnetosphere of particles. But of course, there's not a great deal of drag out there in space. And, and it seems that the emission of the radio waves is related to the magnetic field. And that is the main way they slow down. But then inside, as far as we understand, they, they have a superfluid interior which means that in the middle, there's a special state of matter in which the stuff is spinning in little vortices with no friction at all. So it doesn't really have a lot of internal friction. And then on top of that, they just have a huge amount of kinetic energy as they spin. It takes a long, long time for them to slow down. So this is very non-Newtonian stuff. Yeah. Really weird. <laughs> yeah. We don't quite know exactly what goes on in the centre of a neutron star. No, that's right. We don't. Um, and how come they spin up as they accrete mass? Because as well as in sort of inheriting the mass of what they're taking, they also inherit the angular momentum or the spin of uh, the object they're accreting from. So if the original star that they're robbing the mass from is spinning a bit, they'll inherit that. Their original sort of very rapid spin comes from the fact that they collapse down very small and that causes them to, to spin more and more revolutions per second. A bit like an ice skater. Yeah. As they draw their arms in. So these things are super, super dense. Could you give us a, an earthbound idea of what that yeah. sounds like? <laughs> yeah, if it means anything, um, we think the typical density of a neutron star is about a billion tonnes per cubic centimetre. So a cubic centimetre is like a smallest sugar cube kind of size. And you're talking about a billion tonnes in that, which is, it's been said to be similar to the mass of all the cars on Earth. Wow. It's just ridiculous. But then, oddly enough, the, the nucleus in every atom inside us right now has a similar density. It's just that the nuclei are normally very, very spread out and they create what we call normal matter. And in a neutron star, it seems like all that space is squeezed out. It's condensed so it's, completely. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Really extreme physics. So what is it that you look at with millisecond pulsars? Well, what we've been trying to do and what I've been part of uh, for a long time is an effort to detect gravitational waves. And that's something that's not coming from the pulsars that we're looking at, but the pulsars are clocks placed into a ripply sort of field of gravitational waves. And we hope to see those clocks 
changing a little bit. So this field of gravitational waves, is that being caused by the pulsar spinning or is it a, a background gravitational wave? It's a background, yeah. So in some cases, maybe a binary pulsar system might cause gravitational waves, but that's not really what we're looking at. So we think that the gravitational waves are out there, partly because Albert Einstein predicted this in his general, general theory of relativity a long time ago, and partly because we think that out there in space, extreme events happen like black holes smashing together. Um, and this should produce these sort of ripples of gravity that we call gravitational waves. Um, and they kind of move along stretching and squashing the space as they go. But we also know that if they're out there, they're very, very, very tiny and weak. So they ought to be rippling around us all right now, um, but causing a, a length change as they go along of sort of, I think it's less than the diameter of a proton over the length of a meter. So a length uh, change in space time is that? Yes, yeah, length, length change in space. They they sort of mostly they leave time alone, but they they wobble space about. But yeah, if you imagine looking at a meter stick and trying to measure one proton, which is one subatomic particle in one atom, it's very very tiny. But it it scales up. So as we look at the pulsar signals traveling to us for from a very long distance, so we can hope to see a length change that we can actually measure, and we hope to measure it as a, a change in when the pulses from the pulsar arrive. So the pulse travels a bit further than it had to previously or a bit less far as the wave oscillates, and we hope to pick that up. So you look for a change in the period of the pulsar on a very small scale? Yeah. I mean, we're looking... If it was a very, very strong sort of individual source of gravitational waves, you'd actually see the pulses get later and then get earlier and then get later and then get earlier in a sort of a wave-like like a wave, pattern. Like a tide or something. Yeah. yeah. But because we're sort of looking for a background of, of lots of these things, what we actually have to do is look at the pulsars uh, as a function of their separation on the sky. So what we care about is, is there some little tiny correlation? Is there something that's the same in the timing of two pulsars as a function of how far apart they are? They could be like a degree apart in the sky or 90 degrees apart in the sky. And by timing of lots of pulsars... We're actually hoping to pick up the background in the vicinity of, of the Earth, sort of in the vicinity of the solar system, because that background will affect the timing of all the pulsars that we can see. So you look at the background gravitational wave measure of the local solar system, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it'd be the same and ones then, that we're, we're subject to now. And you look to see if there's a similar signal change from two different pulsars coming from different directions. Yeah, exactly. And okay. it can depend, but maybe about 20 of the best timers that we've got so that gives you every pair of those pulsars gives you a, a point on a on a graph which is a, a function that we call a correlation function and we hope that that graph will take on a particular shape so um, we know what we're looking for already we're just yeah we know what we think we're looking for according mm -hmm. to general relativity it's possible that if there are differences between the way that gravity actually works and general relativity that you could pick up a different shape but yeah we we know what we think we're looking for and the main problem is actually that these gravitational waves are so weak that this this sort of graph if we sort of drew it rather than being a nice line that'd be really easy to see it'd be lots of little points representing the different pairs of pulsars and there'd be lots of um, noise in that graph so that line would be subject to lots of wobbling and, and we have to measure it accurately enough so that we can actually say that shape is really there and it's not just random wobbly uncorrelated points so does that involve looking for more and more millisecond pulsars as well does it get easier when you have more of them yeah it does yeah and they have to time to a certain accuracy as well so how many of them are you looking at at the moment well at the moment there's 
about it does vary actually about different groups between sort of 10 and 30 at the moment so it's it's not a, it's not a very high number and and we're still doing surveys to find more we know there's more out there we might find one that that times better and even one that was really good would would significantly add to what we have so you have a whole list of millisecond pulsars and then you have to chuck them off the list when they don't meet your criteria yeah some so there are a lot do. of them out there yeah or? and there's that we can find the number of millisecond pulsars last time i checked is around about 200 or so so it's pretty small um, and then the trouble with some of them is if they're quite far away and the signal is quite weak that affects our timing so our limit on accuracy is not really the rotational stability it's more how well can we pick up those pulses how well can we pick up those ticks um so how good our equipment is pretty much yeah exactly yeah so we think there's the potential to get better and to make a a, a real detection and so far all anyone's been able to do is say well here's an upper limit on how strong that gravitational wave background can be we know it can't be any stronger than that because we would have found it otherwise um and we hope to push the detection threshold the detection limit down and down until eventually the real thing comes out and we can say we found gravitational waves so does that involve possibly waiting for a, a new telescope to be built or how how do you det- what telescopes do you detect them with at the moment and could we make that detection yeah. with those <laughs> yeah that's that's a good question so uh, certainly when the square kilometre array comes along and that telescope's supposed to solve everybody's problems and, and that'll be amazing. Um, but that's still quite a few years away. But we can try and improve on what we've got by joining telescopes together. So radio telescopes like the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank. Uh, there's one at Effelsberg in Germany. Um, there's a few of them out there. There's uh, Green Bank and Arecibo in the United States, Parks in Australia. And um, by combining the timing data from all of those, that makes you more sensitive. So that has been going on for some time in what they call pulsar timing arrays. And the one in Europe is called the EPTA, or European Pulsar Timing Array, and they bring their timing data all together. But it's sort of become clear as it's been done that there are a few difficulties. It's hard to hammer down that accuracy because what you really want is each pulsar to be timed very accurately, maybe to an accuracy of sort of 100 nanoseconds. You find that your telescopes have different back-end instruments that are processing the data and that can make life difficult and so we have got to the point with the EPTA where we can soon to publish a new limit on the strength of gravitational waves and that's great but we also know that we haven't got to the point where we can detect them yet but hopefully in the next 10 years yeah well they keep is there is there a prediction (laughs) or is it always 10 years away it's it's always five years away okay yeah when I started my PhD it was five years away (laughs) (laughs) that's an optimistic estimate but I mean the thing is the limits are going down Mm. Um, yeah whenever you make a detection uh, there's always uh, you always improve the limits and you can always close in on the result even when you haven't quite got it yet so EPTA or EPTA have recently been working on a series of papers which you are named on yeah Uh, I think there are six of them named papers one two three four five and six imaginatively (laughs) <laughs> and they've done a little bit of a Star Wars thing. Four, five, and six come out before the first <laughs> three. So. Yes, they've all been written um, in concurrently. And mm. yeah, they may be coming out like Star Wars. But hopefully they won't sort of peak at number five or six, depending which your favourite Star Wars are. <laughs> hopefully they'll all be of good quality. Yeah. 
So what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis working with this big collaboration? Because with all these telescopes and that sort of stuff, I guess there's lots of people doing lots of different things. Yeah, what I've been working on is within a sort of subgroup of the EPTA that's called LEAP. And LEAP's an exciting project which stands for the Large European Array for Pulsars, a good old contrived acronym. <laughs> um, but that is really trying to take another step forward to improve the accuracy that we're doing the timing with. And it's by taking hold of five radio telescopes that we have in Europe. And instead of combining the timing data sort of after the fact, which is the usual way of doing it, we're trying to use the telescopes, uh, what they call coherently, which means you're actually making the observations exactly the same time with all those telescopes. And you're joining the signals, or you're adding the signals together so that they are as good as one telescope. And it turns out that actually gives you a bigger improvement in your timing accuracy as long as you can do it right. So once again, trying to beat down the um, accuracy and the sort of limits that we can place, we are trying this trick of lashing the telescopes together coherently rather than what they normally call incoherent addition, uh, which is the usual way of doing it. So the difficulty with LEAP is that you have to add these signals together with a certain delay, and that delay has to be worked out very, very accurately And it has to be able to change slightly over time um, because as the signals come to the different telescopes, they're coming from the same place, but they take a different time to reach each one slightly because they're in different places on the Earth. But then as they go through the atmosphere, the ionosphere part of our atmosphere, although it's only very, very slight, it does change how long the signals take to travel to us, you know, by nanoseconds to microseconds at most. Because our telescopes are widely spaced out, we have to assume that the weather is different in the different places. And that means that you constantly have to make little corrections. It's definitely the ionosphere. Because one's in the UK and one's in Spain or something. Yeah. Or Italy, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so even though coherent addition of telescopes is done with other other sources, it's particularly hard with pulsars. Is that because um, it's such a brief moment in time? Yeah. And, and they're weak. Um, compared to other sources. So when you look for a single pulse, normally you don't even see it because there's, there's a bit of noise. There's always some random noise in your observations and it's it's hidden within it. Do you actually have to stack pulses on yeah, top of each other? exactly. That so that's called folding and you stack them up and then you see the average pulse. But doing that sort of just to get what they call the coherent fringes, which means a certain um, pattern that shows that you're actually, you've got the delays correct and you're adding everything up right. To get those fringes with a folded signal is an extra step of complexity compared to what normally happens with, with this coherent edition. So that's why we've had to work on making software. I guess, on when the actual timing happens. So you have to yeah. force them to be on top of each other. Exactly. Yeah. You can't see what you're looking for, which is a difference in... Yeah. Yeah. And so our approach has been, rather than doing it online, which means a big computer mashes through the data all in real time, we've been storing all the data from all the telescopes on, on these sort of high-density tapes, and combining it afterwards, which means that we can keep adjusting the delays, looking for the fringes, going back, changing things, uh, which is which is offline sort of processing. There's loads and loads of data that these telescopes spit out that all have to get stored on tapes mm. and have to be brought together. So that's the other big challenge. It's high volume the... stuff, yeah. Yeah. So it's um, I was working this out. We observe over a bandwidth of 128 megahertz, which is quite big to try and catch as much of the radio band as we can. And that means that each telescope generates around about 500 megabytes of data per second. So if you have a really good new hard disk, and that's probably about two terabytes of storage, you could store about an hour of data from one telescope on that hard disk, and then your hard disk would be full up. 
And how long have we been doing this timing for? <laughs> We've been doing it for a few years now. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how much it's been stored in total. It's no longer terabytes, it's now petabytes. Okay. Where a petabyte is a million gigabytes. Um, so there's loads on, on all these tapes and, and, and we move the tapes around to bring them together and correlate the, the data. So um, they're kept very safe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you sort of have to accept that occasionally an observation or two will go wrong, but the sort of the bulk of the tapes are all kept safe. We load them onto computers, we process everything. Um, yes, when you've got that much data, it's even does it even make it hard to back up? Like, yes, it, it's pretty hard. So the tapes are really our sort of backup storage, and then when we're processing it, we load it onto other machines to do it, because a tape is really nice for storing a lot of data, but it's not nice for looking through rapidly. You just want to sort of reel it out like an audio cassette and, and get all the data off onto something else. Um, but that's all stuff that, that's been ongoing, and there's a team of people who've been doing that. It's working, and, and we're getting really accurate timing results. We have to keep averaging for quite a long time, so we sort of do monthly observations of all the telescopes together um, for maybe 24 hours at a time, and then we will add those sort of simultaneous correlated observations to the timing data that we already have, and that will hopefully then enable an even lower limit on gravitational waves. And if we're really lucky and we keep doing it well, maybe we'll get a direct detection and pip the SKA before it's even finished to a first detection. <laughs> Which won't render it useless, but it will be a good place to start looking. I yeah, I mean, it would be really nice for the SKA to know what level the background's at before they even start. That would be excellent. The SKA will get greater sensitivity on it. Um, and, and hopefully start to explore it in, in more detail. And that will help to tell us about things going on in the universe, black hole mergers and those sort of things from gravitational waves as we get from radio waves and other sorts of waves now. It's excellent stuff. But as always with radio and with pulsars, there's a lot of interference. And that's yeah. where you come in. Yeah. What what I've been working on mostly um, in recent times is, is slight, the slightly more mundane end of it because you're absolutely right. These signals come along and they then then get mishmashed with um, interference made by radio devices on the Earth. So we, we don't help ourselves, do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> it could be mobile phones, microwave ovens, yeah, microwave radar, ovens. all these kinds of things. All the um, stories we've been hearing, yeah. Hungry astronomers. That, exactly. <laughs> and all our telescopes are in places where they're subject to that interference. Um, and so my job has been developing a method um, which some other people have made originally for for solar observations and making that automatically filter out as much of the interference as possible from our telescope so we can get to the, the real data. Um, and we have to kind of do that automatically because although you can look through and make graphs, no one's got time to look through all that data. Sometimes this interference is popping up every few milliseconds and, and, and you can cut it out, but it has to be done automatically. So what I've been working on is this statistical method uh, which kind of takes a chunk of data. Essentially, it's a bit like making a histogram, if anyone can remember that, when you make histograms. Um, usually at school, you used to make histograms of how tall people were. Oh, yeah. So in the class, you'd band everyone up. You'd say, right, these number of people are between 1 and 110 metres, 110, 120, 120, 130. Yeah, so the histogram shows how many there are in each group, and hopefully it makes a nice bell-shaped curve. Um, and really, we're looking at the same thing with our radio data. So nice radio data, which is the sort of random background noise that's that's fine, that's okay, makes these sort of statistics. It makes what we call a Gaussian distribution, this kind of bell curve. Um, but if you take a, a bunch of data points and you make a histogram out of it and it looks like something completely different, 
then you may well suspect that you've got some interference on your hands and, and you cut it out. And that's essentially how the method works. And it seems to do pretty well. I mean, no method is perfect, but it, it's it's helped to clean up a lot of data that would otherwise have been kind of spoiled. And the nice thing is it can work on really small chunks of time and really small chunks of frequency. So we can cut out, it's like using a little scalpel rather than a, a hammer, you know, to cut the uh, <laughs> cut out the interference. Yeah, leaving and us with what we want. It's a really important job as well because the interference just gets worse as we get more technical and as we look at smaller and smaller things. Yeah, yeah. something that can be applied not just to pulsars as well. So it can help us out with different uh, observations. Oh, fantastic. So thanks very much for giving us this job bite. No problem. And um, we'll hope to speak to you again soon. Yep, I hope so. All right. Cheers, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for that, Charlie. And now, Indy will be interviewing Professor Douglas Scott about the cosmic microwave background. I'm with Professor Douglas Scott from the University of British Columbia. Hi, Douglas. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for talking to us today. Um, so you've been uh, visiting uh, Doddrell Bank and Doddrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, and uh, you gave a talk on the current state of cosmic microwave background studies, uh, and especially focusing on, on the Planck experiment. Regular Jodcast listeners will be quite familiar with the Planck experiment, We've had quite a few um, Planck people interviewed on the podcast, but this year is the, the 50th anniversary of the first discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation by Penzias and Wilson. So maybe run us through a little bit of the history of, uh, of the study of the CMB and eventually explain why, why it's still extremely important today. Yeah, so, so as you said, it was 1965 when uh, Penzias and Wilson, who later won the Nobel Prize for, for this work, d discovered the cosmic microwave background, which people often talk about as the sort of echo of the Big Bang or the, the noise from the early universe. It took a long time to establish that that radiation has, has, uh, has a thermal spectrum, what we call a black body which means that it comes from from a source which is in very good equilibrium, meaning that it's at one temperature, not heating up or cooling down, no spectral lines, no chemistry that you can do with that. It's just this physics radiating substance. And that comes from everywhere in the universe, as far as, far as we can tell, everywhere we point. And that tells us, once we had established that it was this black body, tells us that the whole universe was once in thermal equilibrium. And the only way we know of to do that is called the hot Big Bang model. So this is a cornerstone of our whole view of how the, how the universe worked. It used to be hot and dense and has been expanding and cooling. So this that was established really by the 1970s. And then people started to look for other deviations in this black body spectrum and are there places on the sky that are hotter or colder than other places. So eventually it was the, the COBE satellite in um, 1992 that established that there are variations in temperature in the sky, what, what we call anisotropies. Uh, and we call them that because it's hard to pronounce and you can tell whether people really work on the CMB by whether they can say anisotropies properly. <laughs> but but the, the idea is that you look for, you make a map of part or all of the sky trying to see if the intensity or the temperature varies from place to place. That was eventually discovered in 1992. And since then, People have been mapping this as a function of angular scale more and more precisely. Until now, now we have results from Planck. Planck launched in 2009, worked for about four years, managed to map the sky many, many times. And we're now in the full throes of analyzing not only the temperature data, but also the polarization information we get. And Planck has provided, by studying these anisotropies in detail, the numbers that describe the entire universe. So we now have this highly quantified model where 
it's not only that there was a Big Bang, the universe used to be hotter and denser, but we can tell you precisely what kind of Big Bang, you know, how old the universe is, how fast it's expanding, how much dark matter and dark energy and, and something about the the seed perturbations that were made in the very earliest times, maybe in a period of inflation, that made all the structure in the entire universe, including, you know, pe people and planets and so on, eventually. So, so it's become... You know, these numbers, which describe the whole universe, come essentially from Planck. So these are, you know, this is the textbook description of the universe that, that we're finding. So, I mean, sometimes people complain that it's boring, that we just measure precise numbers over and over again. But these are, you know, these are the numbers that describe your universe. And I often, I mean, I know lots of people follow sports teams or something. And if you ask them information about their favorite batsman or forward in soccer or whatever, they, they can reel off statistics which are much more precise than, than if you ask them questions about the whole universe. Yeah. So it seems to me we ought to be able to describe the whole universe at least as well as you can describe somebody's, somebody's batting average or something. Um, and that's where we are. We have, we now have, you know, the numbers that describe the whole universe to, to really extreme precision. And then the questions are, where do these numbers come from, right? Why yeah. is the universe the way it is? Absolutely. I think, I think what a lot of people don't realize, um, is that, is that we can actually do that. People don't really think on the scale of the entire universe. When you start talking about cosmology to someone who has little or no prior knowledge of it, they sort of go, wow. You, so you can actually describe the whole universe. And, and yeah, I think that's, that's one of the reasons, um, the study of the CMB is so amazing. But one thing is that, that the people associate, so people who have heard of the CMB, they'll, they'll, probably picture this sort of oval-ish map that has a lot of speckles on it and you know the blue bits are the cold bits and the red bits are the warm bits how i think it'd be interesting for our listeners to try and grasp how you go from that map to these famous numbers these parameters that describe the whole universe um so obviously in reality it's it's really a lot of work yeah <laughs> and there's many steps involved and it takes years to grind through the data so mm -hmm. uh, so i should not give the impression that this is trivial <laughs> But the basic concept of what you're doing is is actually very straightforward. So, so the information in the sky is not recorded in you know is there a hot spot in this place or a cold spot in this place. It's only the scatter in the hot and cold temperatures that that carries the information. So so it's it's the variance okay. of that temperature map that's that's really the information. So what you're effectively doing is you make a map of the sky with pixels of some size. You calculate the variance in that map, so you literally, you know, square all the things in the map and average them together, and you write down that number, right? The variance for that pixel size is some number. And then you change the pixel size, make bigger or smaller pixels, and you redo that. Mm -hmm. And then you just write down the variance as a function of many, many pixel sizes. And that's, that's the quantity that carries all the information. So, so what we actually do is we, we do that in, in a, a lot more mathematically precise way. Yeah. But it's, it's essentially equivalent to that. So you can, you know, you could give a map to a high school student and say, you know, work out the variance as mm -hmm. a function of pixel size. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. is, you know, very, very equivalent to what we do. It's just, you know, how, how many pixel sizes do you look at and what are the error bars and so on? And you realize that you need to be a little more hardcore. <laughs> sure. But it is that that's all you're doing. So it's just that the variation in temperature as a function of the angular separation between parts of the sky is a function of that angular separation. Mm -hmm. And that that function is is defined purely by the parameters of the model. And right now we have a model that only only requires six parameters to to describe it. 
Okay. So we can pin down those six parameters very, very precisely. So it's a, it's pretty much a statistical process then, like, yeah, that's what you're trying to say. Um, so from, from these six parameters and from this model, you can then extract almost any quantity you like about the universe itself. So, so there are many other parameters depend on these basic six, right? Okay. So, so I mean, the six, the six that we measure are the ones that are easiest to measure for the CMB. They're not actually the ones that are easiest to describe to people, but they basically tell you Something to do with the geometry of the CMB, a little bit of scattering that happened recently to two parameters describing the initial conditions, mm -hmm. and then how much dark matter and how much regular atomic matter there is. So those are the six numbers. And from that, once you've defined those six, you can tell what the age of the universe is or the amount of dark energy or the many other things are derived from those parameters. So we now know, you know, for example, that the age of the universe is 13.8 giga years old. Mm -hmm. And I think most people don't realize that we not, you know, we now think we know the age of the universe to three digits. I mean, it's not, you yeah. know, it's not an approximate science. It's a very, right. very precise science. Sure. We know how much dark matter, how much dark energy, you know, really quite precisely. We have no idea where these numbers really come from. There's about six times as much dark matter as regular matter. Yeah. Nobody has a clue for where this number six comes from. Why? Why isn't it seven or seventy-three? Or we we don't know. We don't know what the dark energy is. It makes the universe accelerate. We have no idea exactly what it. We call it dark energy to give it a name. but yeah. We really don't know what it is. Yeah. We don't know where the initial conditions came from. We, there's an idea called inflation that in the very early universe, quantum perturbations grow to be regular density perturbations in a period of rapid expansion. Mm -hmm. So that may be correct. It may not be. We don't really know where these perturbations come from. But one of the amazing things about studying the CMB is you can empirically to tackle these questions. You don't, you don't just have to kind of sit in the bar and mumble with your mates about what the universe <laughs> might be like. Yeah. You can go out there and, and see what the universe is like and learn about where these perturbations came from. That's, I mean, that to me is one of the most amazing things is it's, I guess in the 1950s and 60s, you know, there were no full-time cosmologists. People kind of did it at the weekend when nobody was looking or something. Cause sure. you, you felt a little bit ashamed of working on the whole universe. Cause <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, now we, we actually have a description of the whole universe. It's, 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 it's quite extraordinary that the universe lets us do that, but it's simple enough that, you know, human beings right now have the ability to make these measurements. But of course, when you've made the measurements and got the numbers, you, there's more questions. Yeah. So we don't know where this is going. We don't know whether we're going to learn more about inflation or the dark energy will turn out to be different or mm -hmm. we require some other kind of stuff, dark something else. Uh, we have no idea what's coming next, but there's still, there's still a lot to learn. Yeah, the, the, the way you um, mentioned these sort of parameters we have, and we, we don't know why um, there's X times more dark mass than dark energy kind of draws a bit of a parallel with particle physics where they're also kind of, they've got their standard model and they, they have X amount of particles, but they don't know, you know, why there are five particles instead of six or, or whatever. And, um, it, it's hit a bit of a, sorry, particle physics is kind of coming to a point where they're now just throwing particles around at higher and higher energies to kind of figure out new things. And do you think that maybe with something like cosmology, and something like Planck, where the, sometimes the perception is that we're just refining the numbers, but we're not really finding anything new. And do you think that, is it just going to keep going, and, oh, we're going to get smaller and smaller error bars, or do you think that something something else needs to, needs to sort of change? There's a lot of analogy between the standard model of particle physics and the, and the modern, what you might call the standard model of cosmology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes people criticize particle physics for its success. 
Yeah. So it's been so successful that people chase after tiny little hints of something wrong and, mm. and they've chased those up for, you know, about 40 years and, yeah. and it's all looking pretty good. <laughs> and uh, you know that it's not the ultimate model because, as you say, I mean, nobody knows why the proton is 2,000 times as heavy as the electron. Yeah. I mean, where does that come from? There's, yeah, there's yeah. nothing. So it's not a complete theory, but it's a completely mathematically described theory with, you know, 20-some free parameters. Sure. And within that, you can make measurements, and they all turn out to be to be basically right. And then the Higgs was the particle that would had to be there and hadn't been found, and now it looks like it's found. And so, you know, cosmologists would say, "Oh well, you know, we're making all these measurements. It's not like particle physics." But in fact, the standard model of cosmology goes back to you know something like the early 1990s. Um, so I mean, it predates ev even the supernova acceleration discoveries. It was the best model of cosmology about 25 years ago. So and it's just got better and better and more and more firm. Yeah. One of the differences with particle physics is that 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 at least is a complete theory. With you know that there's you've described the theory in a in a certain mathematical way, and within that way, that there's nothing you, that you can add really. It's sort of self-contained. It's yeah. self-contained. You would have to go beyond the theory to get a more fundamental theory that's completely different. Right. Whereas the the model of cosmology is just phenomenological. You just invent enough stuff that it works. Right. And the bizarre thing is that, that you would have expected by now we would have had to invent more stuff to make it work, and, and it doesn't look like that we've, we've needed to do that. Okay. There is no evidence for a seventh parameter that we require. Everybody expects that this can't possibly be the whole story because it's not a self-contained theory. But, you know, who, who knows what the next thing is we're going to discover. Sure. But we do know if you want a theory of everything... Uh, then you need to explain not only the standard model of particle physics, but also this standard cosmological model. So if you think some string theory model or something produces all of particle physics at low energy, then it yeah. also has to explain where the dark matter comes from, what the dark energy is, and how inflation works. So all of these things are completely wound up in, in fundamental physics questions. Mm, it's a sort of known unknowns and unknown unknowns sort of thing. Where we know We know what we're trying to... We we have question marks that we see and we're trying to solve, and then maybe something will pop out of the blue. Um, coming back to inflation, so one of the things that kind of put the CMB in the news recently was the uh, the bicep two uh, results, and they thought they'd found a trace of gravitational waves, which would have provided a signature for inflation. It turned out that it was just dust that provided those little B modes. So that's sort of the most immediate. Uh, known unknown so the most immediate thing that that potentially um further study of the cmb could solve um what 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 is the expectation i guess um for for those so bicep and Planck are now working together so what's the sort of expectation of things to come in that direction yeah, so you could see by the by the reaction that, that that caused how how big a deal that would be yeah so in some concrete way you would prove that all the structure in the universe came from quantum mechanical perturbations and have some hint as as to how the theory of inflation worked which may in principle give you a hint about what the the more fundamental physics uh, concepts are that we need to explain everything. Yeah. Um so this is a really big deal. It requires making measurements of the polarization of the CMB to 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 exquisite precision with with, with a full understanding of all the the effects that come up in the experiment, which is which is difficult. The, mm -hmm. the CMB is polarized. Yep. It's polarized at a very weak level, and that's hard enough. But these so-called B modes, this this swirly pattern in the polarization, as people described it, 
that 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 signal is really really weak. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really need to go to to not not. So I mean, the CMB is temperature is is you know about three Kelvin, and the perturbations in the CMB have temperatures measured in micro Kelvin. Uh, the polarization is around the sort of microkelvin level, uh, the sort of general polarization. The, this, these B modes, you need to be talking about nanokelvin. I see. So it's it's crazy weak signals. Mm. Polarization is hard enough. Weak weak polarization is really hard. This is very very difficult. There are many groups now uh, working hard on CMB polarization experiments. So so you know you're only going to hear more and more of this stuff. Yeah. Whether somebody else will will detect, you know, actually make a firm detection of primordial B modes proving inflation uh, remains to be seen. But but people for sure people are trying. But but you know, but it's it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, but the bicep team showed that they had the sensitivity. They were the most sensitive experiment in a tiny little part of the sky. Yeah. yeah. They went way deeper than anybody had gone before. But at one frequency, you need to do this at many frequencies. You need to compare to other experiments. You need to, to, to cross-check and so on. And and it's this is very difficult to do. Was was uh, was Planck even expected to to provide results in, in with this kind of sensitivity? I mean, I think I think it's just at the edge, isn't it, of what Planck can do, uh, so, or so a little bit beyond it. Planck's advantage is that you have the whole sky, uh-huh. but plus you have multi-frequency. So so what Planck is on the edge of being able to do is is the larger angle polarization which mm-hmm. which an experiment like bicep can't do because it only looks at a small part of the sky right so the combination of of planck and bicep is particularly powerful and and planck will be used by other experiments as a monitor of of the stuff that's in the way of the primordial yeah. signal so planck the planck data will continue to be used for decades i suspect as as an all sky monitor uh, of these foregrounds mm-hmm. uh, as you're trying to get to the background so planck you know planck will remain valuable for some time to come just because all sky is requires a satellite essentially yeah. and getting these multi frequencies also the higher frequencies you just can't do at all from the ground and even even the lower frequencies are hard so uh so that you know one of the legacies of planck is it, it will be continued to be used in combination with these other experiments which which is which is interesting Okay. Um, having said that, is there what is the uh, the future for sort of space based uh, CMB missions? Because well, a lot of people are looking at Planck and saying, well, we're just getting more and more refined numbers, and and the obvious new target is this um, is this polarization. So, um, is there another satellite mission in the works for, to get even better CMB uh, there's, data? There's certainly planning for such a thing. It's not fully on the table right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit unclear exactly what you would design. So people are still in the discussion process. And you can, you know, you can combine that with other things so that, you know, yeah. how many frequencies do you want? What angular scales do you want? How sensitive and so on. So these discussions are all underway. So, I mean, if the bicep thing had been correct, mm. It would have been all systems go to confirm and measure that with higher and higher precision, and sure. it, it would would have been fairly clear what to design. So now that's that's clearly not a primordial signal, but it, I mean it's a real B mode signal, but it appears to come largely from dust in, in yeah. the Milky Way. Um, it's not clear what the target is right this minute. I would say. Okay. So that may be you know a little more discussion. It may be, be may become clearer what what the path is. Uh, to, to doing that. But, you know, there's certainly a lot more information up there in the CMB and polarization. Sure. But, but to get, 
much more polarization data, you would go to the very smallest angular scales. And those are not the most useful for this B-mode study. Uh-huh. So there's a, you know, there's a sort of tension between the, the best thing for, for this fundamental physics question and the right. best thing for many other questions. So I don't think it's, it's, I mean, there might be other people out there who have a very clear vision and they're just about to submit a proposal. So I might be wrong. <laughs> Um, but I don't think it's very clear right this minute what the next generation CMB mission will be, but I'm, I'm pretty confident there will be one. Okay. And it will have polarization as a main driver. Yeah. 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 That, that would make sense. Anything else? I mean, that, that was a great. I mean, I probably talked for long enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was the next other big thing is, yeah. is what's called non-Gaussianity. Mm. So there is a big push to do that, but actually, the CMB, we've almost run out of information to constrain that. So this is, when we talked about taking the variance of the map, this is like taking uh, three points on, on in your map and combining them okay. uh, to get a thing which would be zero if they were very simple perturbations. And the idea is that there could well be a very small signal in there that tells you something new and exciting about the seed perturbations. So people are really focusing on that. The math is is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of th- theorists working hard on how you how you estimate that. If you try and do the full estimation, it takes forever on a supercomputer. So there's a lot of uh, c- c- crunching of numbers and uh-huh. being clever with algorithms and so on. Yeah. Um, and you can combine the CMB with galaxy surveys and so on. So so. These galaxy surveys are, are three-dimensional. The CMB is just a two-dimensional projection of the sky. Yeah. There's a lot more information in 3D. Sure. So um, so in the future, we expect that with big missions that are coming, ground-based and space-based, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on seeing if you can if you can measure this tiny little non-Gaussianity thing and learn something new about inflation. So, so in terms of what's coming for fundamental, I mean, people would like to know what's the dark energy and so on, but yeah. we have now... We have no guess for how easy that will be to do. But the non-Gaussianity, I think, is a, is a real thing which is, which is coming. Okay. We will hear a lot more about. Um, and it's very difficult to explain to people in a podcast interview. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, great. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. That was, that was a really, um, insightful look at the CMB. So thanks for talking to us, Douglas. You're welcome. And, um, maybe catch you some other time on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for that indie. And now it's time for that part of the show where we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. And so I'm going to go first with my last odd and end. And it's all about something that happened before I even started on the Jogcast. In 1670, <laughs> there was a nova, um, which was thought to be a new star in the sky that appeared in the constellation of Volpecula, but very close to Albireo, which is a double star in Cygnus. Um, and this nova was recorded apparently by an astronomer called Havelius. I think that's right. So it's about 345 years ago. It's been a bit of a mystery ever since, because unlike a lot of novae in the sky, it's never recurred. So some novae are stars which suddenly they brighten, they go away, and then later on they do it again, maybe every few decades. And that's thought to be caused by a star that's sort of spilling matter onto a white dwarf. So these two things going round each other. And when the white dwarf builds up enough mass from the other star, it starts nuclear fusion and you get a sudden burst of energy and light. Um, and then it can sort of start all over again. So that's why novas tend to happen repeatedly. Um, but this one didn't. 
And it's now been examined using an instrument called Apex, which is Atacama Pathfinder Experiment. And that is sort of a pathfinder for what's now ALMA up in uh, the mountains of Chile. And so they were looking at submillimeter wavelengths, which is kind of between radio microwave and infrared. What they found was that the mass and all the molecules that they could detect in what's now left, the sort of um, brightish nebula that's left, weren't typical of ANOVA at all. And so what they think, according to Tomasz Kaminski from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, is that this NOVA actually resulted from two stars merging together, which is really rare. But two normal stars can smash into each other. Not quite sure why. Possibly they're in a binary system. Something disturbs them. They spiral together. They merge into one star. Um, and I think they found a number of examples of this, that what happens is you get a sudden outburst, but you get something that's pretty red. So they call it a red transient. And apparently Hevelius did record this nova as being red or crimson. Um, and they say that what's now left behind, although it's it's sort of fairly dim, is likely to be a, a red-ish star that's quite cool. They say that perhaps these events happen even as much as twice a year in the Milky Way. But I guess you don't always get to see them. Um, and so this mystery of why it's never occurred has an explanation because that merger is just something that, that happened once. Um, and the remnant's still there. You can see a picture of it. And it's just quite exciting because I bet when Hevelius observed it back in the 17th century, he didn't think there were ever going to be any observations that would tell us what it was made of and things like that. It's really amazing that we've got. these two things haven't caused a catastrophic supernova from colliding. Yeah, I guess they must not be big enough to then collapse the supernova. Yeah. So is what's left over after the merger of a star? Is it just another star or is it sort of a, a cloud of stuff? Or There is a kind of a cloud, yeah. And I think that there's a star as well, although it's maybe not so easy to to be absolutely sure of that but they, they call it a red transient or a luminous red nova but that would kind of be the event itself and i think left behind would be coolish star but it it could be a bit faint to sort of be sure they're talking about only 1000 kelvin oh, similar right, to a thousand degrees celsius which for a star is pretty cool but if you take a look at a picture of it that i'll link to then you can kind of see there is a brightish blob in the middle of a bigger blob <laughs> that's that's astronomy for you. <laughs> yeah, it's but, funny because um, well, we're used to well, we're used to astronomers are used to much larger things merging, such as galaxies and black holes, and the concept of that is very um, quite well established. But actually, stars colliding is something that we we're not used to seeing at all. So, yes, so it's pretty unusual, and I guess it happens a lot faster than the galaxies as well. So you could actually see that happening. And someone did see that happening. But when you look, when you talk about a galaxy colliding with another one, that happens over millions or billions of years. It takes a long time. And normally they say most of the time stars don't smash into each other even when that happens. So no. I guess that's why they, they think this probably started as a binary system and something disturbed it. Yeah, some sort of supernova or something knocked it out of equilibrium maybe. Yeah. Charlie, what have you got for us this week? Yeah, so I'm going to give you guys a, a brief update on the odd end that I gave last month. When we were here last time, I mentioned the Planetary Society's light cell mission. It's had a bit of a bumpy ride. As we mentioned in the previous episode, it fell silent after a software issue. It had a bit of a blue screen of death, but it woke up again. It deployed its solar panels, and then it fell silent again. 
and this was due to a sort of chronic undercharging of its batteries. But luckily, it moved out into an orbit where it was in the sun for a long period of time, and its solar panels managed to charge up its batteries. So it finally woke up, began charging its batteries on Saturday the 6th of June, and deployed its sail a day later. And it sent back a, a, a little selfie, which I will link to on the website, uh, which is really amazing. It's the, the solar sail unfurled with the sun in the background, and they sent that back from the Earth's upper atmosphere. So it sailed through the atmosphere for two days, during which they measured things like its rotation rate and the tension in the sail, and learnt how this thing would actually fare <laughs> in a voyage across the stars due to the photons and a transfer of momentum from photons from the sun. Uh, before its final check-in, when it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere on June the 10th. So throughout the time that it was in the upper atmosphere, it had a magnitude of about 4.8, so it was pretty difficult to spot the naked eye. But people did it, and people filmed it, and there are lots of really cool videos on YouTube of this, this bright spark moving very fast through the sky, which was our, our little solar sail experiment. And though it only spent 25 days in orbit altogether, this has been a six-year-long mission, it's been really successful. Uh, its only goal was to deploy those sails, so even though it had a few glitches, it did it. Lots and lots of people have worked very hard together to do it. It's been citizen-funded. NASA have helped out as well. And for the second half of the mission in 2016, they're going to launch another one and actually sail it, actually uh, direct it to places with the solar sail. And that's going to be using uh, a rocket from SpaceX. So it's a real glimpse of where future space missions will be going where companies and NASA and we all work together to do this sort of thing. It's very exciting stuff. It is, yeah. It's, it's pretty small scale and it's relatively accessible. I'm sure, you know, you could imagine in 20 years' time or so, you could probably order a little CubeSat with a little sale for yourself and uh, yeah, it'd probably yeah, cost totally. something like the, the cost of a car maybe or something. How would you launch it, though? Well, you'd have to sort of hire out um, space on a rocket, but given the success of things like um you know spacex and and, and their, their rockets um it seems like upper atmosphere or, or low earth orbit access is is going to be more and more feasible for a lot of people it so, gets cheaper uh, and cheaper yeah and one of the aims of the planetary society is to make this a reality where schools and universities and people who don't have quite as much money as nasa can do experiments in space i think the second satellite that's going to be launched in 2016 on the heavy falcon thing is actually student made so brilliant yeah we're we're on our way <laughs> just wait wait for it wait for like 2030 and the jod sat yeah <laughs> we're gonna beam the jodcast across the world and it's all renewable energy that's nice yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah well that's that's the other thing it makes it a lot cheaper to travel if you can use light because <laughs> yeah light is very light <laughs> <laughs> brilliant um I've got a somewhat related uh, odd and end, um, and it's a subject that's quite close to my heart. Uh, as you will know if you've been listening to Jodcast for the last year or so, we've taken great interest in the Rosetta mission, and uh, so the Rosetta orbiter and its, uh, com- and its companion lander, Philae. And the last we heard of Rosetta, well, Rosetta's doing fine uh, orbiting Comet 67P, uh, Trumov-Gerasimenko, uh, as the comet slowly approaches the sun, but Philae, the lander, which was deployed in November, um, as you probably know, sadly suffered a, a mishap and its landing harpoons didn't deploy, and it sort of bounced to a stop in the shadow of of a cliff uh, on the comet itself. Well, it was very bad news at the time, but this, the ESA scientists told everyone not to worry that 
Given that the comet was approaching the sun, as soon as the angles were right, the lander would be exposed to a lot more sunlight and would be able to recharge its batteries thanks to using using its solar panels. And uh, lo and behold, on Saturday, the ESA controllers got a very nice surprise as they got a wake-up message from Philae beamed back to them by Rosetta. So there was a short communication from Philae to Rosetta on Saturday, which was just 85 seconds long. And that was followed by a trio of even shorter messages on Sunday, which were just 10 seconds long each. These were just sort of messages, housekeeping messages, telling uh, Rosetta and the controllers that uh, Philae was alive, uh, doing okay, and just, you know, status messages about its internal systems. Well, following from that, the uh, ESA mission controllers have decided to move Rosetta into a slightly different orbit, bring it a little bit closer to the comet to facilitate communications between Philae and Rosetta. So it's going to be, Rosetta's going to be pointing in a, in a direction, sort of pointing downwards towards the comet in a much more focused way to really maximize the amount of radio signals it's receiving from, from Philae. Now this is this is actually a little bit risky because as the comet approaches perihelion, so the closest point that it reaches to the sun, there's a lot, a lot of gas and, uh, and 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 particles flying off of the comet because everything's getting heated up and everything's sort of flying away, and um, so it's throwing up huge quantities of gas and dust into space, which has the potential to massively confuse Rosetta's navigation systems and sensors, and um, the Rosetta has an automatic shutdown sort of function where if it if it gets too embroiled in in gas and dust and stuff uh it will just move to a very minimal mode of operation which is what you don't want at all now that we've found Philae. um the deputy flight director for isa elsa montagnon said that it's it's a bit like uh, driving your car in a snowstorm basically th- there's a risk of not seeing very much at all so one explanation of this is is so for example rosette has star trackers so these little cameras that, that keep track of certain stars in the sky and and patterns that let the satellite orient itself uh, so obviously if it can't see those stars anymore um then it's going to be difficult for it to keep the right orientation an illustration of how how bad the dust and and and, and gas output is is um a couple of newer pictures from isa show the comet and a lot of speckles in what in what appears to be the background and they look like stars but it's actually a whole field of dust essentially that surrounds the comet so it's uh it, it's very much out there once this new flight plan is established and, and Rosetta and Philae can have sort of stable communications, then they're going to slowly try and wake the probe up more, charge the batteries up, and move into taking more science data. Philae was in this sort of 60-hour frenzy of taking as much data as it could before it shut down in November. But if they manage to actually wake it up again and do uh, more science, then this the ESA directors say that this is going to actually go further than they, they, they had expected it to be. So they're going to start off by doing tests that don't require the moving of any mechanical parts. So sensors involving, you know, the, what, what's in the air around the comet, uh, magnetic fields and that sort of thing. And then slowly they're going to build up into eventually drilling into the comet, whether, if they can drill, taking pictures and try to beam all that back to Earth. They still don't, haven't pinpointed the exact location, but they assume that once they manage to take pictures uh, and properly get a fix on, on Philae using Rosetta, then we'll have a, a very good idea of, of where uh, the lander is and probably even pictures from Rosetta showing the location on the surface. It's all good news, and uh, hopefully we're going to see lots and lots of interesting science uh, from the mission to come. Awesome. So has have all the experiments that have been done already, has all that data gotten back to us? Or because Philae went to sleep, did we not actually manage to receive all of that? I think I think a lot of that, or most of that, had already gotten back um to to the scientists uh they had a briefing uh so on 
Tuesday, the, the morning of uh, Tuesday, the 17th of June, which uh, they mentioned that there would be a lot of uh, papers coming out in the next few weeks and months using the data that, that Philo had uh, sent back. So, so this is this is going further than what was than what was already sent back in November. Awesome, That's great. Cause Matt Taylor, who works on it, did an interview with us, and I said, "Is it going to wake up?" And he said he thought it would. So I'm glad that he's been proved right. Yeah, all that hard work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It sort of bounced down, bounced around, settled under a cliff. It could have all been um, a bit of a disaster, but it, it seems to be coming coming really good. And if it can drill, that would that would be the icing on the cake, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's managed to survive. You know, sort of minus 150 Kelvin temperatures, and uh, now it, it's. The fact that it's under a cliff is actually a bit of a boon as it's going towards the sun because that's going to provide protection once a comet gets into a position where the solar radiation is going to become a big uh, negative factor on the on the um, lander's operation. So all in all, um, pretty much massive silver lining there. It'll last a bit longer before it gets fried, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So nice. good stuff. Well done, Philae. <laughs> Excellent. Well, speaking of things that have enjoyed the sun, um, we have... Dr. Joe Zuntz, who's answering all of your astronomical questions. Our first question this month comes from John Brooks, and he asks, Could missing dark matter be located beyond the visible universe? Maybe, but probably not. So there's a bunch of theories that have investigated this kind of idea, where not so much that there's matter beyond our universe, but that our universe is actually a bit more strange than we might think. So there's a various theories where there are dimensions to our universe that we can't see. So the classic theories in this vein are called brain world theories. So brain is kind of a pun on membrane, but also on brain brain. So the idea is that our universe is just a slice through a five-dimensional, maybe even higher-dimensional universe, and that potentially there's there's material beyond in those other bits of our universe that aren't in our slice, which are, are responsible for the dark sector. Now, those theories have been investigated a lot over the past sort of 40 years. Most of them seem to not work for dark matter so much. It seems like dark matter is a bit too, not so much complicated, but actually simple to come from that kind of system. But dark energy is still potentially. So dark energy, which is the acceleration of the universe, there are some theories where this comes from material material or behaviour in higher dimensions, so things beyond what we can see in our universe. Great, well thanks, that's an uh, interesting answer there to think about a little bit. The next question also comes from John Brooks, this time he asks, if you could increase a photon of light in its particle form to the size of our sun, what would its potential power output be compared to the sun? So this is a rather strange and surprising answer to this question. So a single photon does have a well-defined energy, so if you have one photon and you know its wavelength, then you do know its energy automatically. There's a one-to-one relationship between those things, they're inversely proportional to each other, and that's what's surprising. You might think that the bigger a photon got, the more, the longer a photon got, the more energy it had. But actually it's the other way around. The energy of a photon actually comes from its frequency, so high frequency photons have higher energy. So frequency is the inverse of wavelength. So actually if you stretch a photon out to the size of the sun, it would have a very, very tiny amount of energy in it. And in fact I did the numbers and it comes out as 3 times 10 to the minus 34 joules of energy. So absolutely minuscule, you know, undetectable amounts of energy in a photon that size. Oh yeah, so the energy of a photon is kind of defined by the proportionality constant, isn't it? Yes, so the the, the classic number there is, is Planck's constant, so that's the number 8 which is called in the nomenclature, and that's after Max Planck, the German physicist from the early 20th century. He discovered this effect, this proportionality between these two numbers, yeah. Cool, nice one. All right, finally, in a recent episode of Radio 4's In Our Time about dark matter, one of the contributors, Professor Carlos Frank from Durham, said that the cosmic microwave background unambiguously tells us how much ordinary baryonic matter there is in the universe. Andrew Horner asks if Joe could explain how this is so. So this is 
fairly complicated, so a little bit involved, so do bear with me. The amount of dark matter and baryonic matter and other kinds of you know, material in the universe, in the early universe, in the early period shortly after the Big Bang, is fairly well described by the structure of the CMB. So that's the microwave background, the earliest light we can see in the universe, the light from the period 300,000 years after the Big Bang. Basically, what we see in the microwave background is a kind of frozen snapshot of what the structure in the universe looks like at that period of time. And what we see there is blobs. So we see blobs of matter and radiation and we see also gravity. So when we look at it we see a combination of the effects of gravity the actual amount of matter that's in a particular place. So we see this as a kind of a 2D surface or all kind of shell surrounding us. So when we look at the blobs in that matter what it's telling us is about structure on different scales. So if there are lots of small blobs or big blobs that tells us something and in particular we can make a kind of graph of size of a blob versus how many blobs there are of that size. So it's like a histogram. We can say there are loads and loads of blobs of matter of about a degree in size. That's what turns out to be true. There are loads and loads of blobs of matter of about a degree in size. The, the structure, particular shape, the form of that is very sensitively dependent on a bunch of things, including the amount of baryonic matter in the universe. And broadly, that's because in the very early phases of the universe, what we're seeing in the CMB, that what these, these blobs come from, is essentially sound waves ringing throughout the early universe. So if you think of a sound wave in, in ordinary air is just compression and rarefaction, so a place of high density air in a place of low density air in a kind of sequence high low high low high low that's what sound is going through ordinary air in the early universe we have a very similar effect and we call them acoustic oscillations they are literally sound but sound of an astoundingly low note i think it's 88 octaves below middle c or something crazy like that and the volume of that sound is a function of frequency a function of pitch the evolution of that the volume of that sound is a function of pitch very sensitively depends on the amount of baryonic matter in the universe in a way that's slightly too involved to go into but it's associated with how that sound kind of oscillates or how matter oscillates in the presence of either ordinary matter or dark matter or radiation and the, the way matter responds to those three things is, is very very precise and is very very clearly given in the microwave and it's a very clear observational signature in particular that we can see in the microwave background. Great well thanks for clearing that one up Joe. If you have any questions of your own please write in via the website at www.jodcast.net Thanks for that Joe and Indy and now on to the feedback we've had two postcards which oh, is great. Awesome. So, uh, one is from Jen that's not a bad thing, but it means it's kind of cheating because she used to be a jogcaster. That's fine. Jen Gupta went on holiday and is frankly showing off about it. She <laughs> went to the USA and sent us a postcard from the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, with the space shuttle traveling on the back of the carrier aircraft. Because, um, you know, you get those photos where the, the plane's actually carrying the shuttle around. Yep. Um, and she says, thought of you on my geeky holidays to the States. I remember covering the very last shuttle launch, which was back in 2011. Oh, well, I'm really jealous. Yeah, I can't believe it's that long ago, actually. And she says, jod on from the fairy job mother. Hey, hey, Jen Gupta. Next one. Uh, the second one is a picture of a moose from the Rockies, Rocky Mountain National Park, Colorado. And Robert Rose has sent us a question for Ask an Astronomer, but he's done it on a postcard, which is really nice. I'm not going to reveal the question because I think that will get answered fairly soon. So it's a good one. I like it a lot. So thank you very much for those postcards. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty great moose picture. Quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> and we've had lots of posts. We haven't had any emails this week, sadly, and no Facebook messages either, but we have had li likes and shares. So thanks very much for them. Um, we've had a couple of, of mentions on Twitter. Um, first off, so... Megan Argo, who used to do the Jodcast News, has tweeted that uh, all those years writing news stories for the Jodcast have finally come in handy because she's now writing material for a press release about a paper. Well, that's exciting stuff, Megan, and we're going to have to we're going to have to interview you 
once that paper comes out so you can tell us all about it. Our next victim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, long-time listener uh, Coco Nino had a couple of funny tweets uh, on the day we released our June podcast. Uh, so we first tweeted, looking forward to new Jodcast soon, but in the meantime, there's at Cheap Astro and at Space Buffins to listen to. Uh, and then a couple of hours later, once we'd actually released it on that very same day, he just sort of tweeted, Jodcast, with several A's and several exclamation marks. Um so well, we're, we're we like that in that, that enthusiasm, Coconino. Thanks a lot. Um, Maybe that's keep, how we should introduce all of them. I think so. Yeah, it's <laughs> a we don't need to describe what's in the show. Just just shout it out, Jodcast. Get it here. If you do want to get in touch uh, and send us a funny tweet, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts, uh, postcards or letters. Uh, the address is on the website. All that's left to say is thanks to Professor Douglas Scott and Dr. Mark Perber for the interviews. The editors were Sally Cooper, Monique Henson and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time... Jod on. And of course, we'd like to add on before the music starts a massive, massive, <laughs> massive, massive thank you to Mark Perver for all that he's done for the Jodcast over the years. Many um, years of service. Since, uh, <laughs> since after 1670, but before, uh, <laughs> 2015. <laughs> Do you want to take us out with a message, Mark? Um, thanks everybody. Yeah, it's been a great few years. I can't imagine what I would have been doing if I'd not been doing the Jodcast, <laughs> really. Um, it's been nice to be able to communicate to so many people and interview lots and lots of great researchers you never know i might be back especially if you do a 10th anniversary special oh we will so Mm. now that i'm not having to organize that i'm going to put pressure on that that should happen in january (laughs) and i'd like to come back and and, and listen to it next year is that 2016 january 2016 10th i'll be something to look forward to but yeah jod on everybody jod on jod on